You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is To Stir With Love, a criminal justice reform podcast. And I am here once again with my co-host, Rav by Yitzchak Kolakowski, who is the head of chaplaincy at Weimar Prison in Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm also here with my other sort of co-host, definitely uh, my, my muse and inspiration, uh, in many ways, inspiration of what to do on this program, but also inspired to live the type of life he has uh, for the sake of Claudia Yisrael, the chief executive officer and founder of Hinda Helps, Rabbi Benjamin Scheiman, um, who is coming to us out of Illinois. He is ably abetted tonight, although in a different location, by his Rebitson, who is the program director for Hidden Helps. That's Mrs. Rebitson, Abigail Scheiman. Um, we also have a very special guest with us, um, and we've been really itching for this because we've had a number of, um, we would say, activists, speakers, uh, passionate lawyers, and um, defense people for the defense and teachers who've talked about uh, criminal justice reform and given us a, a, a real tremendous view of this world that many of us were, were unaware of. I know I was. But tonight we have a corrections officer with us, a person who is retired from, from, from 30 uh, very um, important years of service in the corrections. We're going to be getting to him a little bit later. We'll introduce him soon. But first, I want to welcome a member of uh, the Cook County Corrections uh, Organization. Mike, uh, as I said, is retired, and he's willing to come on the program and talk a little bit and, and, and give us an insight uh, as to some of his experiences and what is it like, uh, some of the, some of the uh, challenges, and some of his ideas about criminal justice reform as well, since that, of course, is what our program is dedicated to. Uh, Mike, Thanks so much for taking the time uh, and, and for being with us. We're all really uh, excited that you're here. Um, good, evening. You know, good evening, gentlemen. I know Mike. I yes, I, uh, I started with the Cook County Sheriff's Department in uh, 1988. I was on my 32nd year, but I finished 31 years before I retired in 2019. I spent uh, time in almost every, well, all the major uh, high bond and no bond divisions. I spent a lot of time in receiving room, which is they, they uh, used to call the gladiator school. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of officers were broken in in, uh, in receiving room to start out. Uh, you're dealing with high volume and, uh, and a lot of dangerous situations of inmates were not cuffed most of the time. Uh, and uh, I, I did my time. I did a lot of, uh, of very tight and dangerous places. I left off in, a, in what they call a street unit, which was external operations. I'm using the name Mike, but I'm sure a lot of people probably recognize my voice. It's a very recognizable voice if they're from the Chicago area. No, all you Chicagoans sound the same. It's all right. I don't know if anybody, <laughs> yeah, you know, right? Just give yourself, yeah, right? it's all the bears. Um, let, let me... <laughs> Um, Mike, you know, we, one of the reasons why we have you on the program, and of course, uh, you know, you, you, there are three rabbis and a Rebbitson that you're talking to. This program, although we are trying to reach a very large audience, 
we we respect the fact that we know that you actually began uh, your service for uh, for Cook County uh, Corrections as a as a committed Jew to to keep the Torah and mitzvot. Uh, I can imagine whether it was an intake or uh, wherever you were involved. I mean, this probably was pretty challenging, right? Was it for you to be able to uh, to to be able to keep Shabbos, to keep Shabbat, and to keep Yontif? How did that work out? How were you able to do that? Well, I, I was committed to getting the job, and uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I was. I was a little scared. I came in on my first day after applying for this job. I'd been out of work and I had side jobs that were not very good. I really needed it, but I said, I took a stand in my head and in my heart. And I said that, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go in there. I'm gonna see, I'm gonna explain my situation and I'm gonna see if they'll take me. Uh, back then you went, to, uh, you went straight into the jail. Uh, nowadays, I believe you go in, into a training academy and you're trained for uh, whatever amount of weeks there is, probably around 13 weeks. And, uh, and then they set you loose into the jail. Back then, you went directly into the jail and six months to a year after that, if you lasted that long, you would go into the academy and you'd be deputized after the academy. Before then, you were considered a rookie uh, completely jail guard. There is a difference between the jail guard and the deputized and the non-deputized. But, but after that, uh, after that six months to a year, you go into the academy and uh, and you're deputized after that point. I had uh, I had my experience was I went into the uh, to be hired, and I I was probably between 15 and 20 other officers in the room. They closed the big door behind us, which was attached to the jail. And you heard people screaming on the other side, a big steel door. And, uh, you know, I was, a little, I was a little nervous. It was a little intimidating, especially because I had to uh, give them my spiel about uh, keeping Shabbat. But I looked at the officers around me and I said, if they could do it, I could do it. And I, uh, I said, I asked this, the uh, superintendent at the time, I believe it was Sullivan, a uh, good man. I said, can I speak with you afterwards? He said, yes. So I said, look, I have one situation here, a little bit of a problem. Um, I keep a Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night. I'm an Orthodox Jew. And uh, if you give me a chance to prove myself, I'm sure I'll prove myself a diligent and hard and punctual worker. And, uh, and uh, you know, you'll be proud. Of and uh, he says, well, I'm going to give you a chance. We're going to try and work it out. They gave me hours that were conducive to keeping my Sabbath. And there were, uh, over the years, some other complications, some other challenges, but I managed to do it for over 31 years. And, and, and you know, I think you're sort of indicating to me, Mike, that one of the reasons why you went into it was because you needed a job. It's not that when you were growing up as a kid, this was in your heart. To become a corrections officer, right? It's not like this is one of your. This is what you were dreaming of becoming. You. This was a. a, a this was a city or a, a job for the city of, of or the or the county of Chicago, Cook County that paid well. Was was that the main reason why you did it? My father, he should rest in peace, was a probation officer, a supervisor in the probation department. Um, I had that that little bit of uh, of. Uh, discipline from him 
I, I was a boxer. I uh, had discipline from Tony Zale, who trained me as a boxer. Wow. And uh, Tony Zale is a name. Tony Zale is a name that's uh, fam- should be familiar to some sports people out there, right? He was yeah, a middleweight champion of the world, nineteen forty right. to nineteen forty-eight, I believe. But wow, when he mentored me, and after my father passed away, he, he had a great deal with uh, with me uh, being who I am. So uh, my father passed away when I was about nineteen. I needed this job, and I needed it bad. And I was, I was scared because as good as it paid, and it was probably the best job I was ever going to have up until that point, I was ready to walk out if they wouldn't let me keep a Sabbath. I was committed to keeping a Sabbath. And they knew that, I believe. And I, I believe they were afraid of any legal problems. But through the kindness of their heart, they let me get my foot in the door. And once I got my foot in the door, I didn't. Uh, I didn't venture out. Uh-huh. The the ACLU or some Jewish agency didn't help you out with that. Some try to work out yes, the deal. There, there was it was uh, it was actually American Jewish Congress represented me. Uh, they came together after a certain amount of challenges from other off, a couple other officers, not many. I got along with most of them at first. Uh, a couple other officers, and then the union for the uh, was. Uh, Teamsters Union at that time, uh, and and the county said, well, you know, they said Teamsters said to the county, you can't do this. Other people want weekends off too. And, <laughs> so in uh, other words, you were going up against the Teamsters. Yes. So wow. uh, we got together. We sat down with the Teamsters, the uh, American <laughs> Jewish Congress represented me, and the and the attorneys for the county, all big big attorneys. They all had their big attorneys there. And they sat down and they, they discussed it and they said, you know, there is case law already in this regard for people who keep a Sabbath, uh, who have a certain amount, who work for a company with a certain amount of employees. After a certain amount of thousand or so, or a couple thousand employees, which we had about 32 at that time, you, you can't discriminate against them if they have to take off for their Sabbath because you can't prove that it have a major effect on the company if they took off, if they made up their time another time. And I, I did that for many years afterwards until they changed the schedule and I was able to bid into a position that I didn't have to take off my days. I'd be naturally off on the Saturday. But, I, but for a long time in our agreement, I worked one day in advance prior to uh, taking my Sabbath off. So I'd have that day on the books. I had wow. some static with other officers, which, I was eventually able to prove myself with them also. There was uh, situations where they would, uh, well, I, you know, you can't, you can't really can't claim it's uh, over religion, but I could recall times when there was, I, re- I remember one time, for instance, there was a, uh, there was somebody who was, it was a stool pigeon amongst the group. And uh, a stool pigeon among, a stool pigeon among the officers. Among the officers, they were writing the superintendent and they were writing the other people, getting <laughs> uh-huh. a lot of people in trouble. Uh-huh. So I didn't talk much. I wasn't really in the mix. And I knew they were blaming me because a lot of them were giving a cold shoulder. And they, they really thought it was me. And um, they, they, one of the guys who got up in the roll call and said, There's, we got a stool pigeon amongst us and we know how to deal with them. We're going to deal with them on our own. And I knew because they were giving me the cold shoulder that they they were talking about me, and uh, uh, 
well, there was a harder time in my uh, in my career, but I kept silent. I you know I, I didn't say nothing. And uh, I was in the I was in the locker room getting changed for work, and they said they said uh, there he is now. We should get him now. And I I, I, I said come on with it. I'll I'll kill the first three of you to come at me. And wow. uh, and the, one of the other guys said he, I think he means it. <laughs> you know back then. Back then, I hate to say it to give away, give this away, but almost all the officers in that division carried shanks because it was uh, very dangerous. Shanks is a homemade knife uh, that was made by the inmates that we used to we used to search the uh, wings, have uh, wing searches every day, and we'd find these homemade shanks that were sometimes look they were so beautiful they look like they're made in a in a factory. And I, I have some of them actually at home only because they used to put them in a contraband can and the can would fill up and there was workers used to clean around the can. And I could recall finding the same shank more than once on a search. Mm -hmm. So I would remove them outside of the jail after that point so they wouldn't get back in and end up in an officer's eye or in an officer's stomach or anything like that. Or so in an inmate's stomach, for that yeah. matter, because they, they, they stab each other more often than the officers. Back then, the officers didn't get hurt very often. They had, there was a great deal of, of uh, fear because if something happened to an officer, it was a, you know, the, they didn't have connections to the other divisions, but if something happened to the officer, they could have, you know, they, there would be a lot of inmates who would end up probably going to the hospital. And it might have been a, a brutal thing sometimes, depending on the situation. So in other, so, so but, in other words, uh, if, if, but, if an officer was attacked by one of the inmates, the, all the inmates, would there would be... They in force, and there would be hell to pay. Uh, there would be communal but, punishment for them. Uh, not communal, not, not necessarily communal punishment. They'd go in there, and the inmates would fight, and they'd lose. Uh -huh. and, the, and the whole jail would be quiet for three or four weeks because of their loss. And a lot of times the inmates, you know, uh, old, old style inmates, when they knew they had it coming, they didn't make a lot of noise. When, you know, I'm saying when they knew they did something wrong, they, they raised their hand to an officer or something, they, a lot of times they, they, they took their lumps like men. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, they don't, not only don't take their lumps, but they invent stories. They sue you all the time. Uh, you don't even have to touch them. And if you don't have a camera, uh, they might, might sue you for doing something to them that you never did. I understand. You know, um, Mike, you know, what you're describing is so juicy and so you know, <laughs> interesting. Like, you know, it, it really confirms for many people the type of stereotypes that they think about how, how rough it is. Let's just remind everyone listening here that technically where you were working was not a prison. It was the jail. It was the holding tanks for the eventual jail, right? The Cook County Courthouse Jail, Cook. right? Cook, and, County, and Cook County Jail next door to the courthouse, right. about, two, about two blocks underground if you walk through the tunnels of receiving room. Uh, Cook County Jail at that time held about, about 15,000, 14.5 to 15,000 prisoners. It and was these fully people- staffed, Fully run 
and all the divisions were open and they, and they ran it very professionally. By the time I left, it was hovering around 4,000, between 4,000 and 5,000. They had knocked down some divisions and the, the overall uh, idea was to try to get them out of jail as fast as possible. So, uh, so actually this leads me to the other question I wanted to ask you, which is the changes that have occurred. I mean, you're describing the way things were around 1988 or something like that when you began. Um, you, 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 it was 2019 when you uh, retired. What were some of the, the major differences? You talk here about the, the decrease in the number of people being held. What other great changes uh, are, the, are, are the most distinctive changes between then and now? Well, they, de they decreased a lot of the uh, people who were being held. They decreased and separated a lot of officers too. Um, it became, it's a, it's a very much, it, excuse me, it became a very dangerous situation if you were working on the inside. Like I said, I could, excuse me, toward the end of my career, I was working on the outside in, in external operations. We would deliver prisoners to the hospitals for operations, deliver them to court uh, on an individual basis. If it was a dangerous prisoner, he'd, uh, he'd have his own ride over there. Sometimes we keep people in protective custody. But on the inside, it was mostly veterans in, the, in external operations, but they didn't really want to go back to the uh, inside if they could help it because the inside had gotten very dangerous. And you almost have to wait until you're hit before you respond. And once you're hit, uh, you know, it's the, it's the punch you don't see coming that, that hurts the most. And I've, and I've seen officers get pretty, pretty badly beaten. Um, before you can get to them. So you're saying in, in, in the late 80s, when you came there, the police were sitting at a much more protective perch. Uh, they were, there was much more control, even though there was a, a certain good old boys network among the, the, the correction officers, they themselves were more protected than you, they are today. And you think that's part of that is because I'm just, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what you're saying is, is that, um, uh, the, the, there, there, there's a greater fear in the officers today of being hurt than there was when you started. Well, yes, there is, but there was a more respect for the officers from the prisoners. Yeah, I, I understand. Anything. It wasn't necessarily like it was a good, good old boys network, like you say. They, uh, there was a, a common fear and respect for the officers. And the officers, most of them who were professional, never took advantage of that. That they, they just, you know, they just worked their job and wanted to go home like everybody else. There were you had sergeants who would go in the in the in the day room and play cards with the uh, with the inmates. And you come in there at the end of the night, you're looking for your sergeant. He's on the inside playing cards. Uh, the, you know, not all of them were dangerous to everybody. It all be, it all was about how you carried yourself, pretty much. Would you, I know that there's been some changes in terms of how you could search uh, the prisoners uh, the way it was then and now, right? Um, when you first started, when a, a prisoner was taken in and he was brought to receiving and they were going to put him in a, in a cell and hold him, they were able to really manhandle them and, and, and do a strip search, right? No, nobody manhandled anybody. Okay. <laughs> you know, they, they, uh, 
they they if they were manhandled it's because they were uh they were um violent or or or, or they would uh, how do you say they were resistant some okay some i way, take that back form. not manhandled so, but so let but me they, tell you but, how how that went there was a uh, uh, a few hundred that would come in on the new back then every day. They'd come into receiving room and before they got into the receiving room, they'd march over from the courtroom where they were at that point, they were, they were bussed in from the police stations. And uh, now during the day, we'd send them out to court to various courtrooms. Uh, they, you know, they'd, you'd send over, you know, sometimes 1,300, 1,400. So, so, um, so they would march them in from the new, straight from the police station. They hadn't been searched yet. We'd put, a, put them in a long tunnel along the wall. And three or four officers would call the shake. One, they would be up against the wall. They'd have them undress, one thing of clothing at a time. They would uh, face the wall, uh, and put the clothing down on the ground. The officers would check their clothing for a contraband, have them squat and cough and uh, put their clothing back on. If at that point you had a, a problem with, a, with an inmate, you had better address that problem immediately because with all those inmates uncuffed, you can get yourself killed. But they, there was a common respect and fear that, they, that most people honored. And most of the time you didn't have a problem. When we had a strip search before the... Uh, before the lawsuit, when they went to uh, machines similar as you see in the airport, and there's ways to defeat those machines that you have at the airport. I know, I know ways. But when you when you had uh, the inmates coming in on the new like that, it wasn't a day that went by when you didn't find some contraband. It wasn't you'd find something, drugs, money, knives, gun, something, every single time. It went from that to uh, finding maybe uh, some pocket change. So you're saying, so you're saying, Mike, that basis. you're saying, Mike, the old way, which again, you're not, they were not being manhandled, but since they, since the under the police guidance and commands, they needed to un disrobe, you were able to check them perfectly and totally, and you were able to confiscate these dangerous items. Whereas you're saying today, 30 years later, because of various lawsuits, again, the nature of which we don't have to go into now, things have changed to a point that although there is, as you say, there are, there are metal detectors and other sorts of devices searching them, you, 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 you are certain that dangerous items are getting into, uh, into the jails and prisons because of that, right? That is what you're, that's what you're telling me. Without a doubt, it's still coming in. It didn't stop with the, uh, with, with, uh, with the, uh, the, uh, I see. With, with the machines, it, uh -huh. it, you know, I'm sure it's still coming in. It's just, you're not finding it anymore. You know, it's hard. And, to and of course, these are items that could be used a shank or a shiv that can be used to, to harm a correction officer or another inmate. Rabbi Scheinman, I know you had a question well, here from Mike. Rabbi Scheinman. Yeah, it, num number one, it's not just a question. It's a, uh, I want to show my gratitude. Um, as you could hear from the discussion, if, if for the officer there's danger, imagine the 10 or 15 Jews 
that are like one for every thousand for the at that time when it was 14 to 15,000 people. And there's only 15 Jews scattered through the some men, some women. Uh, you could imagine. Uh, and I'm only at that time. It was before my son started going every week. I was going once a month. So you could imagine how worried I was about the um, select few Jewish uh, detainees over there. And thank to Mike. And there's also, you know, there was at least one or two other uh, Jewish fellows that were also, uh, you know, kept Shabbos that I could count on that I knew they were keeping their eyes out. I would be in touch with him. He would be in touch with me. Rabbi Scheinman, I found this guy. You have to see him the next visit. Or I would call him and say, hey, can you keep an extra eye or have somebody protect or watch? And, and through the years, I knew there was a watchful eye within the staff. So I really wanted to uh, give thanks for that. And, uh, I, and, and I don't know if you have one uh, incident you may remember over the years for any of the Jewish detainees you were able to help that you would like to share. Before you answer, Mike, I just want you also to respond because I know that part of what every correction officer has to do, whether he's playing cards with the inmates or not, is to seem uh, impartial. Um, and yet, you know, you as an Orthodox Jew, if you noted that there were Jews there, what, I'm sure every, every person who sees someone who's part of the Jewish people, who himself is part of the Jewish people, is going to feel some sort of connection and feeling. So... Um, how are you able to manage that trick, to be able to, to as you say, Rabbi Scheinman says, to look out for them and still be able to be that uh, stone-faced professional? Well, uh, I'll, I'll tell you that, but let me add a quick snippet here. The, the sergeant that used to do that was very prejudiced, didn't like, uh, didn't like Jews, didn't like white people, and I didn't condone him going in with the inmates because you take, you take almost their side when you do that. But I was, it was not beyond my control, that is. So uh, as far as Jewish inmates are concerned, every once in a while I'd run into some, some with a yarmulke even, uh, not, uh, not very many, few and far between. Most of them didn't spend much time there. But I did what I can within the law to help them. You know, yeah, it's a very catchy, you know, tricky situation because you don't want to do anything that'll jeopardize your job. And you don't want to do anything that'll... It'll make the other inmates think that you're showing favoritism, which would get them hurt. Uh, I could recall um, there was one, uh, uh, one male, uh, male inmate I gave a job cleaning up one day, and uh, he was Jewish. And he was getting so much heat for it that I decided not to, not to, not to use him anymore. But I tried to help him where I could. I remember there was a female inmate when I was in the female division for a little while, a uh, very short time. There was a female over there who was in there for vehicular homicide. She had, uh, um, she had taken something that, uh, you know, affected her driving ability. And she ended up doing some time. But while she was there, just happened to be on my wing. It was a, she was a from lady. And I did my, uh, my best to try to help her. You know, when it comes to helping uh, a prisoner, yeah, so, you know, so what, what, so what did you think? So what did you do? You made sure that the bulls over there would, I, I might be using the wrong term. I know I haven't seen, <laughs> I haven't seen orange as the new black, but I think, right, you have the, uh, the bulls on the, um, uh, on the wing. Yeah. You made sure that they would take her under their wing and not let her get abused or hurt. 
Well, I carried myself appropriately over there, and because I did, most of them respected me. They liked me. And I so, said, look, you know, you got this lady over here. I said, you have this lady over here. She's, 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 she doesn't, she's not a criminal, you know, you know, this, she's, uh, I want to, she's a nice lady. Uh, if you can, if you can, can you look out for her a little bit, you know, and then, you know, when, when you're not, when you're in jail and you're not plugged with a, with a, um, with a, they call it plugged, you're in a gang and, and you're what they consider a neutron, somebody who's not in a gang, you can get your lunch taken, you can get hurt, you can get taken advantage of, pretty much mud kicked in your face all the time. They were nice to her. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that. Mike, what, what, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, and you're a, bo- you're a boxer and you're clearly, uh, without bragging, we can see that you're a tough fellow. What, what made you go into the, uh, to become a woman's, uh, to be involved with the women's prison? Was there some incident that, uh, uh, you know, sparked that well, to happen? The woman's part of the jail was always open for bid, but nobody wanted to be there. You know, not many people wanted to be there in their right mind wanted to be there around all those women, most of which, you know, um, you know, I mean, you don't go there to, to, to pick up with a girlfriend, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, so how did you end up there? There must have been something that uh, precipitated that. What was that? I was in a very bad division. And uh, uh, I, uh, I had some orders that were inappropriate orders from a, uh, from a sergeant who told me to go hands-on with removing some stuff from the bars. And I told him removing, right away that- Removing stuff from uh, some of the prisoners' uh, uh, cells, right? Yeah. They, they, in, they that put division, up- in that division, there were bars. There was division one. And, and if they clogged the bars with too many items, you have to tell them to take it down. If they didn't take it down, you were to write them up, is what you do. And he wanted me to go and physically bring them down. And I told him, look, you're, you're going to get me hurt over here. I said, this isn't appropriate. He says, just follow the order. And he gave me a hard time. And I, you know, it's fairly new. And I followed the order. I got a, uh, one of the inmates took a broom and he, uh, he put it through the bars and stabbed me in the eye. I got it in the side of my, uh, my socket, not in the eyeball itself. I received five stitches. And that's why I could see with two eyes here because it didn't go in the eyeball. Yeah, the inmate himself, he got a violation from his gang for doing that because he didn't have any, he didn't have the, uh, um, the approval to do such a thing. And he got some, uh, yeah, I'm sure he got some heat from officers too. How about I you? Never was able How about to, you? Yeah. You, 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 didn't, you didn't respond to him after he, he stuck that? I did not respond to him and he was shipped out very fast after that. He got, I think, uh, 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 I think he got like 40 years or something like that, uh, but he got uh, whatever 10 years or so. They if they got concurrent, that means whatever 10 years they throw it in on the 40 years or whatever, he's probably out by now. Even though he got a, a lot of time because they cut him loose early, uh-huh. so uh, they used to have a day for a day good time, and you you get out in half the time. So but, after, uh, so he after... didn't get it. Nothing happened to him. Later on, I got into it with one of his gang who was an enforcer for that gang. And, uh, and uh, the, he, we got into it and he got the worst end of it. 
after that, somebody came on the on the. In other words, on the one, let me let, let, let me just translate for those that are trying to understand. Basically, an inmate who was part of one of the gangs, the Crisps or the Bloods or whatever they are in in Chicago, who was in who was in uh, who was an inmate, you got in with them. In other words, you got into a physical altercation with this guy, right? We got in a fight. Yes, and basically you beat this guy up, right? And, and basically he lost, yeah. Yeah. And he was an enforcer for the gang. It means he was a big guy, yeah. and he was, he was, uh, he was sent to do... He was, know, sent, yeah, he was sent to attack you for what you, how you had caused one of the gang members to be sent up after that guy attacked you with the broom, right? Well, he, he didn't like me, but an enforcer is, is sent to enforce could be collected debt, could be to break a nose, break a knee or stab somebody. An enforcer is somebody who works for the gang uh, doing the dirty work. Even though he's a prisoner who's technically, uh, he's technically incarcerated, he's still an enforcer for a gang, right? And um, so once you won the fight, fair and square, I'm sure, um, what happened then? Well, it didn't, it didn't go on that, uh, that long, but, uh, but yeah, he got the worst end of it. And I uh, had somebody who told me on the side, you got a hit on you, a legitimate hit. So that means they, they, they were out to get me. And, uh, and in that division, it would have been just a matter of time before they did get me. So I looked at the bids when they came open. I saw in division four, which was women's at the time, was an opening that I could keep my Sabbath. So I hid out over there for a little while, and that's the only reason why I would have gone to that division. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, tell me, you know, um, Mike, um, I, again, it's a, as, as Rabbi Scheinman said, we can only just be astonished by your fortitude and how you were able uh, to, to keep your not only you know, your, your, your positive sense of life and your commitment to God when you were in, in such a very difficult situation. Um, I, I guess when you were in the, uh, in the women's uh, division, I'm sure you had to deal with the prisoners a little bit differently, recognizing that they were from different genders than you were used to, right? There's, there's different protocol dealing with women from, right? The protocols yeah, is up. The protocols are different because the women are a little bit different. You know, they, they're a little more, even the, even the rougher ones are, are a little, you know, a lot of times they are, well, the, the, a lot of times, the one, even the ones that look like men with beards and stuff had, a lot of them had children, but you have a certain ah. amount of compassion for them. You know, mm. they, they had a very rough life. A lot of them were raped when they were little. They say they only like women and, uh, and they were abused as children. And a lot of them, uh, even if they don't, even if they weren't uh, what they would call uh, bulls, they, a lot of them, you know, they, they were passed around. And, uh, and uh, you know, if a, if a 135 pound woman goes in there, who's never gotten a fight in her life, maybe she's in there for a, a small offense, a forgery or for, right. uh, uh, you know, a small drug offense or something like that. She goes in there. She pretty much doesn't have a chance if she's put in there with a cell in a cell with a 200, 225 or 50 pound woman with a, with a, has a beard and looks like a man has been fighting all their life. Mm -hmm. she, she's going to be probably abused, and uh, they generally don't talk about that. They they say they're so quite often they say they're gay for the state, 
And uh, that means that they're gay only when they're inside and when they're outside, they're not. I understand. Uh, I, I, but, think, uh, I think it's a lot of very sad things in the women's division. And they, they didn't address them, I thought, the way they should, because a lot of times they didn't care what cell they put them in. I used to care. I'd say, let me see the inmate before I put them in and assign a cell. They'd call me up and they'd say, we got a new inmate. I'd, I'd say, uh, let me see the inmate. And I'd try and put them in with somebody who wasn't, wasn't uh, going to victimize them. Um, I, I, these are things you know, but you don't talk about too much. You know that the person was victimized. A lot of times they'll come out with the next day with hickeys on their neck and stuff. You know, was, was, was this before the PREA law came into effect? The what law? The PREA law, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, the federal law. No, this was, I believe, PREA was being taught at the time. Because uh, we're very strict about that. Any, even the slightest uh, you know, inclination of anything approaching that uh, they take it very very seriously it's uh yeah they they do but they don't the, the inmates run the jail the inmates yeah, run the jail right. the inside of the I jail agree. is run by inmates uh you you, you know and, and if you're not careful how you carry yourself you will have uh, a problem yourself you, you stuck your... i carried my it's like you're saying that Pennsylvania, what, 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 what Mike is describing to you does not sound like what you're familiar with from the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, right? No, they're, they're, they're so strict about this PREA law. They have a whole division, a whole, uh, a whole you know, the, that's part of the staffing is that there's a PREA lieutenant and a PREA coordinator and, and they, uh, and they uh, other, uh, there's at least three or four people that that's, uh, two people that's their whole job and then someone else that, that uh, and additionally that to make sure that anything you know remotely close to anything like that is they're very careful to to avoid because they they want to have the there's a, a a number of federal funding that's attached to that that when you meet the standards that are required for, with this law you get extra funding. So it's it's an incentive to make sure that these things don't happen. Uh, and certainly that's something that, that comes into consideration, uh, you know, when somebody, where they're being housed, who they're being uh -huh. housed with, and, uh, well, and well, to the well, point well. where people get moved around, uh, you know, even even for things, if, if they're they're making someone else uncomfortable with their own actions, not, not necessarily something they're doing to someone else, uh, if their actions make other people um, then no, uh, uh, they had they were teaching Priya in academy then also you get in service training once a year they taught Priya also in the in the in service training the uh, the the there's there's ways to get around certain things if if the officers who are assigning the people to the cells are bulls themselves you know I I don't want to you know uh, call. I mean, they might have a husband and children at home, but you could tell that they're, they're like that also. And they don't care where they put them. Eventually, they're going to get to them. And, if you got, and, and even if they do, if they do um, end up in another cell after, out of 30 cells and, the, and, the, and, the, uh, and somebody takes a liking to them and they, and they, they, they talk to them, and have a you know real talk with them. Say we want you to move to my this cell. Tell the officer you want to move to this cell, or they want to move. You know they want to get transferred 
not because not because they're scared because they want to be closer to so-and-so to their girlfriend or their wife or whatever so there's ways to do it that they can do that and they do it all the time they abuse the system they have 24 7 they have uh ways to get around the system i see you know let's move you know what it's, 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 i i see that in um uh, candid with me in a conversation I had with them earlier that he has been uh, the subject of of some lawsuits um, that some prisoners uh, with the help of jailhouse lawyers and other thing have, have uh, uh, filed against him. Uh, Mike, so talk a little bit about that, about the, the threat of having to deal with uh, lawsuits against you from some of the incarcerated people. Well, most of them are settled as nuisance Suits. And when the when the word got around that they, that you can sue the officer or sue whoever you want, and and the county doesn't fight it, uh, they don't tell you know it's easier to settle as a nuisance suit they call it, where they just pay the guy off to be quiet. And that inmate is usually very happy to accept that money, and they uh, uh, and they take it and run. And word gets around that you can sue, you get to make a few fast thousand dollars, a couple thousand. And they, they'll they'll take that lawsuit and they'll take their chance and uh, and they, usually the county won't fight it they'll pay it off. And and, and tell me, Mike, when when you are the uh, subject of these lawsuits, it's not pleasant, is it, to know that uh, there's going to be there might be a trial or might be legal proceedings against you, right? No, I've been sued many times and it's not pleasant and it's a big burden when you. When you finish and you're not, when you know that the lawsuit's been settled, and you know you, you feel a lot better. Right, and and again, when I meant that, when I said the good old boys network, what I meant is that many times it's it's you again, it's you you and the inmates, but also you and the brotherhood of the other officers. Especially if there's an officer who has something against you, um, these lawsuits might be ways where uh, they could extract revenge by pushing it to a way that you might end up being disciplined and hurt when nothing really happened, right? Uh, would you say that most of these lawsuits, as Yitzchok was saying, as, my, as, as Rabbi Kolokowski was saying, that most of them are, are, are mostly trumped up and, and, and really of, 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 of very little significance and not true, right? I'd say most, not all, but most. Uh, I've, and we've had officers who sided with the inmates a lot of times they were, you know, they could have grown up with them or they're in the same gang as them. You have that too. And uh, we've had, uh, there was one, one female officer, she, uh, she was given, going to the opposition to the inmates attorneys and given all the information she could about the officers. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh, her fellow officers. Um, tell me, Mike, you know, this. I, I got a lot of stories, uh, but I, I, I tell you, I'll tell you one or two in particular. One, one where I was at, I was invited for a Shabbos, and there, and, I, and there was a lot of people invited. It was a big Shabbos table, you know, a, a Sabbath meal, and uh, and people. There was another, a lot of people started introducing themselves, and when I introduced myself, I noticed across the table there was a guy who was uh, eyeballing me. And uh, the way he was eyeballing me, I knew, I knew right away, this guy, this guy has a history, he's been, in, he's been incarcerated. So I, I didn't, didn't waste any time. You know, I, I, I stopped, I, I met his eyes and I said, 
I said to him, when did you get out and how long were you in? And he, and he told me right away. He didn't try and lie. He says, and I remember you. And he <laughs> said, okay. And I, right, right then I started looking around me saying, well, you know, am I going to have to fight this guy? You know, I'm just thinking how many knives are on the table right now. You know, if, if I'm going to have to worry about getting stabbed. Um, and, uh, you know, those challah knives, those challah knives, they could do a lot of damage, even more, yeah, than, the, so even more than the shanks, yeah. <laughs> even yeah. more than the shanks and the shivs. Yeah. Those challah knives. Oh, yeah. Uh, so. Those knives are terrible. Yeah. Uh, so, so, um, so he says, yeah, he says, I remember you, you used to work in receiving room, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. And, he, and I, as he said something I didn't expect, he just uh, stunned me. He says, I was in such and such time and I was scared and I was in receiving room and you're the only one who helped me. You put me on computer, you explained my case to me, you took me to the side and made me feel better. So I was uh, of course very relieved to hear that. We had a very nice evening and Shabbos meal after that and uh, we became friends. I didn't hang out with him, but, uh, but whenever we saw each other, it was, friendly. It was a friendly uh, exchange. Uh, you know, nice guy. He was in, I forget what he was in for. And you didn't even know he was Jewish he at the time. You didn't even realize he was Jewish when you, when you did the intake on him all those years before. Correct. My, Mike, Correct. I, Mike, you know, the, the, our, our, our program is called Criminal Justice Reform. Um, you know, is, is there something where maybe you could talk about, you know, what do you think? You know that this is an issue that, that Hinder Helps has been on the forefront of. Our podcast has been, has been trying to, to open this subject up and to hear about it. Uh, from your perspective, um, do you see, are there areas that you think really need criminal justice reform? Do you think the system, the way it is, um, uh, is okay? And what do you think we, we, we can do as someone who's a veteran of that, of that system? Is there an area you think we need to address? You know, if we ever talk again, I could tell you a lot of different things, you know, but uh, I'll, try and, I'll try and limit it to the necessities at this point. The, if you have recidivism that's very, very high, they're coming back year after year after other year, whatever, you know, for similar crimes, and you keep letting them out, they're going to keep doing these crimes. Recidivism is very high because for whatever reason, they're stuck in that mode. Now, uh, you know, the, there, there's a, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, gentlemen, you probably know it better than me, a Pusik in the Torah saying, if you are cruel, if you are kind to the cruel, you will be eventually cruel to the kind. Did I get that right? I think that is what um, uh, what was said to Shol Amelech, yes, when he, um, okay. when, he, when, he right. when he allowed Agag to live, right? That somebody okay. who had, someone who was, right, someone who was, was kind to the cruel, which Shaul let Agag off the hook, uh, he ends up, of course, uh, being involved in the killing of the whole city of Nov Irakoanim and other things like that. Yes. Yeah, so there is so, Medrash Kohelis that, that says it right. on, on that on that Pusik there. Right. It's not a okay. it's not a Pusik itself, but it is a Maimer Chazal. 
but it was said so, about it was said about Shola Melech, yeah. So I've heard, um, for instance, uh, Rabbi Victor Miller one time gave a tape uh, a tape class. I heard one of his tape class classes concerning uh, when uh, Ed Koch, the mayor, he put a freeze on the death penalty over there in New York. And he said he's got blood on his hands. Mm -hmm. Everybody who knows anything about, uh, uh, about the jail could tell you anything that could be done in the jail, uh, anything that could be done on the street, rather, could be done in the jail. If somebody murders uh, and you lock them up and you don't give them, the, say, the death penalty, if you know for sure that he did it and you allow him to live, he can go on and kill again. It's the same with any kind of crime, uh, murder, rape, robbery, anything they can do on the street, they can do in jail. So when you have recidivism that's very high and you have uh, inmate activate groups, and I, I don't mean to insult anybody who you know, has a kind heart, but who will do anything they can to try to get them back on the street, you have to know there's quite a, quite a few, you know, there's a price to pay. So, Mike, it sounds what you're saying, the criminal justice reform you're talking about is actually being stricter on criminals and recognizing when you do have violent offenders that they need to be dealt with uh, efficiently and, and, and correctly so they, they aren't back out on the street. I, I, I'm going to take a guess here, Mike, that you probably don't subscribe uh, to the much repeated idea that uh, that our criminal justice system is skewed against persons of color. You, would, would, would I be correct in saying that you don't think that? I, no, I don't think that. Yeah. In other words, you don't, think, you don't think the system is prejudiced against uh, people, people of color, right? No, no they, 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 they arrest the people that do the crimes. And it's not an easy thing to do. I had a lot of black partners uh, that I had to work with. And uh, you know, the, the black areas that a lot of them lived in uh, or, or had to work in, they didn't want to be there either. You know, I mean, a lot of times it was, they, the police go where the, where the crime is. And if they happen to catch a person doing a lot of that, from your perspective, that doesn't mean that the system is skewed. What that means is we need to do better work in those African-American communities to stamp out the crime there. Uh, Rabbitson, yes, was Most I right? Rabbitson, was I right that uh, that you're sort of itching to come in or, or not? <laughs> I'm not itching to come in, but um, I, I think these problems are complex. And I think what this illustrates is that that we have um, a very two sided, two sided system within the prisons. We have because, as you know, I also work with the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And so the police have a story. There's good apples within the police and there's corruption also within police, but very little. They're usually very smooth in how they handle it. And then we have people who are incarcerated who actually never go back again, who rebuild their lives for good or whose crimes were minor. And then we have people who really maybe shouldn't come out. You know, I even say that, who's who, who really are dangerous out on the streets. And why is this recidivism happening? Is it we lock them up forever and then we stop recidivism or are there better solutions? 
And once you're placed in a position where you are the officer or you are the person who's in charge, you immediately, anybody would take a certain position. And once you are the person incarcerated, you take a certain position. And can we break through these walls and find solutions? If you have a, a place where, you're, where there's more poverty and more crime and more trauma, right? You will have more crime. Um, per capita, yes, people of African-Americans are incarcerated more, but more white males are incarcerated, for example, than females, right? There are certain populations that are more incarcerated. Um, people who are Native American, are more incarcerated, right, per capita. And I think we need to look at why. What's happening in these communities? Is this a cycle of trauma and crime that can be broken? Can we have discipline within those communities? Can they discipline themselves? Or um, are police going to those communities because that's where the crime is, right? Or if that's where there are, they're seeing more crime. I think there's a lot of complex questions. And when we start to take sides, we don't always find solutions, but we can't, it's normal for an officer or somebody in a prison who's managing these people. You know, you might have a few bad apples, but that's all it takes in the prison that you have to be on guard, right? Well, so yeah. are we coming to solutions, right? And if you let them out, they're gonna hurt somebody. They're gonna hurt someone, no question about it. Um, the, the the people who uh, uh, you know who are incarcerated for life, they have nothing to lose. They're gonna they're gonna hurt somebody else if they if they you know the the death penalty. A lot of people, a lot of non-Jews, uh, you know, uh, would assume death penalty is a, you know it's getting even and you know you can't get the person back. Why why assign the death penalty? Just keep keep them locked up. For life, people get who, who you know who are locked up for life. They can still hurt somebody who works there. They can still hurt another inmate. They can you know the idea of the death penalty wasn't for getting even. The idea of the death penalty, in biblically speaking, was to rid the society of a cancer. They're they're hurting people. That's why I brought up that pasuk in in the Torah. That you know the the, the saying is you're kind to the to the cruel, you will eventually be cruel to the kind. Because if you get them out, you work there. A lot of people work very tirelessly to get them out. And they, all they need, uh, you know, they have access to the law library. Uh, all they need to find is a, a loop in the, you know, a little a hole, a mistake in their case. You have, you have jailhouse attorneys who get paid, uh, you know, by, by other inmates, uh, you know, uh, to, do, to examine the paperwork and to look at their case. And if they get, get a retrial, if they get, get their, their case thrown out, they're back on the street. You have, uh, you have, uh, you have lawyers, you have, uh, some of them, you know, might be religious even. Sure. But, uh, you know, they're working, they're, uh, they're going to feed their families, and they might get some of them out back on the street. You know, they're, they're, but who are you going to hurt then? Are they going to come back again? Do you know? For sure that they're not going to murder again. No, you can't, you can't guarantee they're not going to murder again, um, and/or rape or molest or whatever they're going to do. Yeah, and I think also in the Torah, they didn't have incarceration. They did have a death penalty, 
and the death penalty was a method of tshuva, of redemption. And, and sometimes they didn't have enough evidence to incarcerate them, uh, to, to give them the death penalty, and they let them go, and they trusted God to deal with the situation, which we would not do today, right? Okay. So the whole system was entirely different. I'm not sure. Rabbitson, let me, let me just, uh, as, the, as and Yitzchok, I know, would, would also respond here. We know, Chazal tell us that if we know somebody, uh, the judges realize that the man is guilty, but the evidence bar was not reached, there was alternative ways of eliminating this person. So it really depends. Um, right. We're, we're, what, 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 what's the equivalent that Mike is talking about, the technicality, for example, it wasn't proper hasra, it wasn't proper warning, or there was something going on that, that, that uh, technically gets the guy off the hook. Uh, the, right. the, there's no hands on the witnesses because the witnesses can't, if the witnesses lose their hands, you aren't able to technically kill the person. Besden, if they know he's the guy, um, right. can but eliminate the, purpose, the person. But there was no incarceration. There was a death penalty, but it wasn't managed in the same way we would use a death penalty today. Yeah, okay. So what we see is a horrible situation for some of those people who are incarcerated. They're certainly not improving. They're certainly not redeeming themselves. They're not getting any treatment. And, and, there, and, and there aren't that many... There aren't there, and you've put also your officers in a dangerous situation with people who are um, angry in horrible social situations and horrible physical situations, both, you know, in terms of crowding, both in terms of food, the officers now are in danger. And it's also improper to send a police officer into those situations. The we have to understand the stress. Always, the officers are always in danger. Yeah, and, and, I, and there's I think... always... And, and, and let me tell you, I could tell you this, that there's always programs to help the inmates, you know, to, to, if they wanted to better themselves. And they, but, they sign up for them programs because if they could, if they, if they got a drug case and they're looking at, the, you know, um, um, they're looking at a lengthy prison sentence and then somebody tells them, go to this program. We'll get you in it. And if you're, if you're addicted to drugs, you know, we'll send you to this drug program and you'll go to these classes and we'll get you out in half the time. They'll say, they'll raise their hand, they'll say, hey, I'm addicted, even if they never took the drug before. They, you know, they, these are the best kind men in the world. They say they were addicted. They'll say they were abused as a child. They said they had violent, uh, violent history. This is why they did this. They were angry. They lost their head. I don't know. All these different types of things to get, they'll jump on those programs because they, they, they might get I out see. in half the time. Yitzchak, I want to give you, Yitzchak, I know you've been waiting here. Uh, and, and, and Yitzchak, go ahead. You know, Waymart is very proud to be a, a program oriented prison, and we, we do go out of our way to uh, offer not only the programs that all the prisons in, in Pennsylvania offer, but many others, especially for mental health and other other issues that uh, it's, uh, you know, I guess, you know, every place is different, but one thing that, that, that I do see uh, giving uh, inmates jobs and things, you know, especially people who maybe never held an, an honest job and things like that. It, the, the purpose in that is not just, again, not just because there's work that has to be done inside the prison and, and so forth. And it's not either to give them money that they can buy things in commissary, but it's, 
to teach them a skill that they'll have something when they leave. It's not, it's not, um, you know, that they, they should really, and I, and again, and I see that for those who, who take advantage of that, for those who do um, want to be better, who do want to take advantage of these, uh, not just, uh, and there are, there are the con artists who, who are doing it just to, to be able to get out quicker, but there are people who really, if they're serious about it, they really want to turn their lives around. They, they, it will be a house of corrections, not just punishment, not just, uh, you know, it's not just retribution for the sake of, of, you know, taking some kind of revenge, but actually getting these guys out better than they came in. But most prisons, I would say, it is how Mike is saying that, you know, you're locking, you're locking someone up who, and, and like, like the Robinson said, you're locking someone up who do, who didn't necessarily, you know, uh, belong in this in this area, and they, now they're they're uh, they're going to be, uh, you know, surrounded by criminals instead of having the good role models. And and it, you know, the, if the the criminals are running the the jail, yeah, it's going to be a very very scary situation and and counterproductive. But where I work, I see, you know, we go we go out of our way. To make we are not the ones that are managing these correctional mm-hmm. institutions. We are not the police officers going into these dangerous situations. You know, when a teacher is managing a classroom, you know, it's very easy to come in and tell her what to do when you when you are not the person managing it. But what we have created is a system in America where we've created this huge divide this huge system of punishment. When you're in that situation, you step on one side of the bar or you step on the other side of the bar. And, and we have the largest incarceration rate in the world. Something is happening, right? It's probably starting with the filter in the court systems. Then those people are heading into overcrowded jails with lack of resources, food resources, crowding, <laughs> I mean, the officers are dealing with this. Some of them really have mental health issues that are not so corrigible, right? And some of them really come out, like a lot of our clients rebuild their lives for good, but prison becomes a trauma within their life. So I think people on both sides of the bars needs to listen because we need solutions. And if we don't listen to those in the institutions and those police officers, as well as the other side, then we don't have a whole story. Okay. I, I know everybody here, it was, like I said, I know you're well-intentioned, but you're dealing, you have to remind yourself sometimes, you're dealing with the worst or the best con men in the world. If they, if they know that they might get away with it, if they're, gonna, they, uh, if they're mentally ill, they'll say they're mentally ill. And I've seen, I know mentally ill, and I could tell you stories about the mentally ill the real mentally ill that were other inmates were afraid of, but they all had they, they all had their their little act to try to win people over. I was able to tell. I was able to tell whether they were actually crazy or just acting. I got dozens of stories to tell you whether right. they whether they, <laughs> well, they were acting. In terms of of that, we we hope that the people listening here can understand this uh, multiplicity of voices and perspectives here uh we're gonna wrap it up here babe so take care everyone um mike once again thank you um and we shall hopefully be back with another 
episode of the stir with the love. Um, hopefully next time. Take care, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 